This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well... Good Friday afternoon, everyone. Uh, Good sunny Friday afternoon for most of us. I'll take this kind of stuff, 17, 20 degrees and sunny, uh, right in my ballpark. This is News Talk. Chance to have a review, good gab or just dissection of the day's or week's news, this being the end of the pretty busy week, really, overall. um, Given that, you know, we're still sort of into the dog days of summer, although you can feel the news cycle ramping up again now after the traditional summer lull. Of course, Return to school, dare I say, it is around the corner. And with it, all the programs and events that come with that. School lunch program for one, of course, which unfortunately will be a relief for many families struggling with the high cost of, well, everything. Uh, But especially food. So what's in the news today? Um, Just have a quick scan of the headlines. Of course, um, a gentleman at the RCMP had been looking for down on the Buren Peninsula. Tony Farrell has been arrested. They uh, took him into custody Wednesday night, apparently without incident, but uh, he was hiding in a house in the Ville Marie Drive area of Marystown. And um, uh, they tried crisis negotiator, that sort of thing. Uh, Didn't work. Wouldn't come out. They went in and uh, he was hiding inside and arrested. Um, also found some firearms here, which the RCMP had been warning, you know, since mid-July um, when they were searching for him. A couple of communities were shut down. Um, they kept looking and finally um, tracked him down Wednesday night. So he's now in custody, faces a bunch of charges, dangerous operation of vehicle, flight from police, resisting arrest, possession of stolen property. There's also, um, they say they found evidence of uh, things that might have or might not have been taken in a number of break-ins in the area. So if you were a victim of a break-in, so always possibility the RCMP may have retrieved some of your things. So uh, uh, more charges are coming regarding that. So he was in court uh, yesterday, and shocker, glad to see this, he was remanded in custody, and uh, only because of the search that they had to uh, endure this time around. And his next court date is September the 6th. Um, the uh, one of two people, of course, charged in that uh, historical sex crimes, um, alleged sex crimes from the east end of St. John's, the two elderly gentlemen, 80-year-old man and a 62-year-old man, they're still facing charges. A raft, um, is it uh, Tony Humby faces about 24, actually 24 charges, not about 24, so two dozen charges. And Bruce Escott, he's 80 years old, he faces um, 10 charges. So um, Mr. Escott was in court uh, yesterday and um, no bail plan yet. So he remains in custody, as does Mr. Humby. And uh, Mr. Humby is actually going to trial in November. Uh, that's the word right now. And Mr. Escott's still waiting for a bail plan and trial dates haven't been set. And let's see. And the gentleman that um, is accused of scamming, the grandparent scam, he was also in court um, that was simply put over. Still a volume, I think his lawyer, Bob Buckingham, mentioned 1,700 pages of disclosure from the Crown and still awaiting some more. So a little bit more time before they get to election and please on that. And let's say if, let's say 10 years ago, you picked up a book about a former U.S. president potentially running for another term while facing four separate criminal proceedings and not just any charges but accused of mob-like offenses like racketeering and conspiracy and to do this that and overturn an election and uh challenging democrat the democracy of the united states if and getting his mug shot taken and then there's minute by minute coverage of him leaving his house and a trip to the airport and on to his private flight and 
onto another state to be arrested and booked and then back onto his private flight and then back into a motorcade and second-by-second second coverage on, uh, on the cable news networks. And then around the same time, almost every other, I'm just saying, if you picked up a book and this was the book, you'd probably think it was a bit over the top, but stranger things have happened. And around the same time, of course, this week, almost every other candidate for the Republican nomination in the U.S. going up against Trump, uh, they say, really, they're fighting out for VP, but none have a prayer, really. He's like, Trump's like 30 to 40 points ahead of even DeSantis at this point. But they're all asked if they'd support him as the nominee for president, even if he's ultimately convicted uh, involving any of the four indictments. And six of the eight raise their hands. Yep, we'll still support him, even if he's convicted of, the, of, uh, of these offenses. Blows my mind. Um, and that includes the alleged winner of the debate the other night, Nikki Haley, and uh, who, you know, herself has a strong reputation before the U.N. and foreign policy. I think it was former Arkansas governor was the only one who kept his hand down. Then former New Jersey governor Chris Christie uh, said he wasn't trying to raise his hand, whatever that means. What is going on? Anyway, the other big story, of course, today is huge story is the Toronto Blue Jays. And if you know me and... Uh, Caught me hosting this show a few times. I'm always willing to throw in a little bit something about the Jays' run, if you want to call it that. They're back home tonight, start a series with the Cleveland Guardians. I'll never get used to that. Um, interesting how some teams have changed their names out of respect for Indigenous, but others, like the Braves, still haven't, and especially the ridiculous tomahawk chalk, which I just tomahawk chop, which they all partake in, which just drives me. And there's Kansas City Chiefs, and don't get me started on the Washington Commanders, but that's another story altogether. I digress. The other story in the news today is um, is a poll by Abacus Data that um, showing, not maybe surprisingly, really. I mean, this is the lull that you would have. There's no real, there's no election call, and you know, it's it's easy to think that maybe Prime Minister Trudeau uh, and the brand has become a bit stale being in office for so long. So, not surprisingly, Pierre Polyev is pulling some stronger numbers. The Conservatives across the country, really. And I just noticed one stat there. They're almost uh, neck and neck liberals and conservatives throughout Atlantic Canada, traditionally liberal uh, ground. But, um, you know, again, it's it's not there's no election next week or even in the offing set date. But um, showing that uh, he's pulled up strong and that uh, seems support seems to be waning for a prime minister who's been in office for some time. Uh, it's almost kind of a natural cycle, really, but that's just my own perusings. In a few minutes, we're going to uh, link up with Tim Powers, um, <laughs> to former teammate of mine. We'll talk about that. And uh, Tim will be on to discuss the poll, the polling results that has the Conservatives leading by 12 now, um, as only about, they say, 27% now of Canadians think the Prime Minister should run again. Just 27%. But we'll dig a little deeper into all those numbers coming up uh, after the break. Uh, we're going to join up with Tim Powers, and we're going to run through some of the numbers, some other interesting ones there, too, that I'm really looking forward to having a chat about. Um, that's right after the break here on News Talk. I'm Brian Callahan in for Linda Swain. We'll be right back. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. 
Brian Callahan back with you on the program today on this Friday afternoon. Um, Claudette, you got a traffic note there. Yeah, so one of our colleagues, Fonce, uh, was in uh, kind of a slowdown on the main highway in CBS. Originally, he didn't realize what it was, but uh, it is uh, due to an accident in Kellegrews in CBS on the main highway just outside of the Orange Store. Emergency crews are on hand, but that's why you're expecting slowdowns in that area. Right on. Thank you very much. Um, still no word from Tim, hey? No. So we're trying to reach Tim Powers, um, going right to voicemail. So it could be a very important call, or uh, maybe he just took a nap. And uh, <laughs> No more cookies from his family for you. I can, I can say that. He also <laughs> called me the Patrick Waugh of the Big Turks, a hockey team we played on. I was never a Patrick Waugh fan, for the record. I was not. I was a Ken Dryden guy, and uh, so uh, I'm looking forward to correcting him on that, but can't get a hold of him at the moment, so um, we're just going to have... I'm going to move on to another piece that I had for the second uh, half of the show, and this is an interview I did um, if you uh, were a fan or even if you weren't, and you took in the Churchill Park Music Festival a couple of weeks ago. Um, a great success again, overall. There were issues. Some people talked about sound. There was a little bit of wind and rain, such as an outdoor concert in Newfoundland and Labrador. But um, So I sat down with P. Quinton uh, of uh, Mighty Quinton Concerts, who now has uh, established this concert here in the province, and I had a quick chat with him. Um, actually, I didn't have a quick chat. We sat down and really went through the whole concert and other parts of, um, of how he came to be uh, in the, this line of business and a little bit of background on him. Now, that's going to be on a larger interview coming up next Saturday on our Profiles feature. Um, but I thought today it'd be a nice time uh, just to give you a bit of tease of that and our conversation specifically around the festival two weeks ago. It's really, you could call last year the first year the, the test to see how it would go, and obviously it was success to come back again. Um, what did you need to change from last year to this year? Oh, we changed a number of things. <clears throat> you know, the beer, beer tent and things like that was a bit congested last year. The way we set up uh, facing Elizabeth Avenue was... You're not thrown as long. You're thrown wider. And, and, you know, when when people come into the view angle, they want to get in closer. And so longer was a little bit better. We set up more east to west this year and uh, had a better flow to all ages, had a better viewing. I wanted to put that in because certainly a band like the Lumineers has got a lot of young audience. And trying to accommodate all of that was, was key to making it a success. I, I couldn't see having someone who's 17 or 18 years old and their friend is 19, they can go and the 18-year-old can't. I, I doubt that wouldn't be fair. We try, try to make it as inclusive for everyone as we can. I remember when I was young, Brian, probably like you, going to Tina Turner and stuff like that. Yeah. When I was 17, you know, and then greatest memories of my life, some of them, right? So that all of that, the only way to do that is to set it up the long way we did it this year. Um, worked much better for sure yeah it's always fascinating to me as well all of the different issues and, fa- and and things that have to go into making to making this work and i've watched it for years as you just mentioned back to yeah, and watched promoters come and go and and concerts come and go and weather and all the thing that people see but the other things behind the tangible things behind um the the um behind the scenes so to speak uh, fa- always fascinates me. So um, when you talk about that, I, I think one that's one of the biggest things, the first thing that I noticed and people asked me was the direction of the stage uh, and why it was changed. So can, uh, I know you just mentioned uh, the, the wider versus the longer, but can you just say, uh, just explain a little bit why that was for the just basic uh, explanation to people that went and said, oh, they moved the stage, wonder why they did that. 
Yeah, so the site is basically 450 feet wide, like from, from east to west, and it's 320 feet deep from, say, the north to the towards mm-hmm. Rizal Avenue. So when you're running long ways like that, even though you've got as much room, when the, when the main act comes on, or even the second, well, when any act sometimes, when you're busy, everyone tries to get in that view angle, and what happens is that it's compressed right to the back of the field. Right. Whereas when you've got the longer throw, your angles are better. Everyone has got a good view. It just angles back, and you have a much better view of the stage and allows more people to get in the view angle better and just accommodates the flow of people much better. Great. Exp- be yep. Makes perfect sense. Great explanation. Some uh, some wondered whether or not the sound suffered as a result of that. I mean, I get no matter what concert you go to, depending on where you're standing, sometimes it depends on the wind. But uh, so it wasn't, it had nothing to do with sound and neighbors and all that kind of thing, eh? No, not into that. We, we battled a lot of wind on the Lumineers. Like it was 62 clicks of wind. I mean, we only operated 80, so, you know, we were lucky to get the show off. And, and of course, no matter where the sound was, even if it were the other way, it would have just been blowing sideways. Um, there's not much you can do about that. Uh, the next weekend, you know, like I said, some of the sound stuff we can't control. We don't have control over different things, the board and, and uh, you know, the mixing board and stuff. Uh, Things like that, I can't get into too much. But the Lumineers, we had, we did have a fair bit of wind that night, and we got very lucky that we even pulled that show off. We had to drop our video, drop our sound, wow. strap it down, you know. And, and when it was blowing, the, the system would turn a little bit and blow a certain ways. And unfortunately, it's either no show or we make the best of what we can do with those wind conditions. And in Newfoundland, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes that happens. That's unfortunate. I mean, for me, Brian, you know me a long time. I want everything to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Our sound system is the same sound system we had last year. In fact, enhanced a little bit, you know, and and people, we had a number of people, you know, 500 or more said, sending notes on how good the sound was. It's just the conditions were difficult, uh, particularly on Lumineers. And, and, you know, there's some things out of our control otherwise when it comes to some of the other acts sometimes. Yeah, and no matter where you are, I think you're going to hear issues about sound or sight lines or anything because there is as good as that, as, as wonderful as that venue is and the ambiance and the setting and everything. Um, uh, I, you just mentioned 80, so that's kind of a limit, hey? So 80 clicks would be a limit. Anything over that just can't work for safety and other reasons. Well, we got the mobile stage. They're rated for 115 miles an hour before it would come apart. But when you get up to 80 clicks, I mean, 85 probably, somewhere around there, uh, you got to, like, everything starts blowing and twisting, and the video mm-hmm. starts, even if you got it strapped, you know, you, you get you get safety concerns, and, and you're pretty well done at that point, yeah. Yep. Um, I must say, and I think I mentioned it to you uh, before, that the little bit of wind and a bit of rain that did come on Saturday night for the second Atlantis concert was probably, you know, was was a bonus, really, for the special effects, if you ask me, especially, and for Feist, too, you know, like, with the wind going and the and the, the whatever fog machine was going, whether it was the real fog or other fog manufactured, it all just get added to the show, really, so lucked out a bit there. We got lucky with the weather. Like, that rain was scheduled to come and go a fair mm. bit all day, and we kind of got in between the rain jobs. It came down for, like, three minutes, and then it stopped. And then another minute later on, it stopped. So it was a great – I thought Saturday night was phenomenal. The sound was perfect. The number of things going on that, to me, were amazing. And, uh, and you know, it's uh, – you know, Brian, like I said, we're, we're trying to be as perfect as we can – uh, sometimes some things are out of our control and what is in our control we do our best to make it 
perfect, you know, and yeah. I'm a bit of a perfectionist and unfortunately it keeps me up at night often, but, but it's the way I like to do it. People pay their money. They want to see a show and we want to produce it. And we're going to hopefully continue to do that on, on, on all kinds of levels and uh, bring, bring people some great acts. And, you know, we'll adjust uh, next year for wind even more. I'll, I'll probably, you know, compensate for that a bit more next year. You know, we, I didn't think we had to. With those conditions, you may never be able to beat it. But, you know, some some more in the delay stack behind the mixed position at 150 feet or 200 feet and things like that. So we're, we're going to continue to improve. And, again, you know, I, anyone who – I mean, I found the sound tough on, on the Lumineers night because of the wind. Mm. I found it a little bit tough another night, which had nothing to do with us. I can't get into too much, but uh, sure. but you know it's it's uh, so I've seen that myself, and we we did everything we could throughout the show to correct it on our end, you know. Yeah, and you're working with not just one band's crew either, right? I mean, you got different specs for different people, different crowds are coming in on the board. They've got their own gear. They've so you're dealing with multifaceted groups and personalities, and in this business, uh, that can be quite the ra- run the gamut. You do, and I mean, you got to understand, you know, the contracts, I mean, you know, every band that, that comes in on that level, uh, they've got, it's in the rider, it's full control of the board, they're, they're controlling the soundboard, and, and that, that's the way it is, but I mean, all in all, we had a fantastic festival, and, and you know, people enjoyed it, I know, you know, some people complain about the prices, I mean, one thing you got to understand, Brian, we're buying these acts in American dollars for the most part. Uh, Great point. And metric and stuff. And then, you know, we're selling it in Canadian dollars. And to get anything here in Newfoundland, you're at least 25 to 30% higher. I got to bring the stage in. I got to bring the, bring the sand in. I got a truck out of it at $9,000 a truck load times eight trucks and different stuff like that. You know, so it gets, it gets expensive. And in order for us to continue to do this and improve, we, you know, unfortunately, mm-hmm. the pricing and things need to be where it is right no absolutely and it's i'm sure it'll be music to the ears uh, pun intended uh yeah. that you're talking right away no question about next year any um so no question about that everything's good are you do you have any kind of a short list can you tease anyone with who you're even thinking about looking at schedules and tour dates and all that kind of stuff no, not really. We're looking at a number of things. I, I need to do a little postmortem with the city here now, and uh, and you know the neighbors are good. I mean, yeah, of course, when you see that bit of mud there in some spots, they get a bit, you know, uh, you know, concerned. But but I think we're good for next year. We've got some big stuff in the works. I mean, we're we're playing on that level now. It's taken a long time to get there. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of friends in the industry around Canada that do, you know, Ottawa Blues and Quebec Day and stuff. So we're growing with them. They're helping us as sort of, you know, independent promoters. And I think you'll see some big stuff in the future, uh, whether it's on that site or on that site and another site or on another site. We're, we're, I think we're going to continue for sure. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say there's some people, I, I look at other promoters, something like uh, Dave Carver, who always, his his dream was to bring in Springsteen. Do you have anyone like that, that in your own personal preference that you'd like to get in? Like, you know, what would your dream uh, gig be? Who, what band do you want to get here personally? Oh, I would love to get Springsteen. This is very expensive, you know, to do that. It's very difficult. I mean, I know Carver's dream has always been that. I, I certainly would have the same one. I mean, there, there's others on the list. Shania is there, the Chili Peppers. These are bands that I love, that I'd love to get in here, the Killers. I mean, all these 
all these bands. Uh, you know, there, there's a number of them out there. Not saying any of them are impossible, but but you know, it's it's starting now, Brian. We're I've got a meeting in New York uh, in the middle of September that will highlight a lot of things we're doing at, for this year coming. You know. Yeah. Um, hey, if you don't land the Chili Peppers, I know there's a great cover band around town that could uh, you know just fill in on short I, I notice. Heard. Oh, shameless plug on my part. Uh, That is Pete Quinton of Mighty Quinton Concerts. Uh, Of course, the man responsible and the group responsible for bringing the Churchill Park Music Festival to the city the last couple of years. And onward and upward, so says Pete, uh, for next year. Everything looks like it's on schedule. Heard him there talk about some of the issues, but every year is a learning process. And when it comes to weather... What are you going to do? Uh, that is always, between weather and getting on and off the island have always been the two thorns, um, you know, for promoters trying to bring in acts here to Newfoundland. So um, let's say, and again, wouldn't tip his hand there, but uh, boys, oh boys, Springsteen, what a thought. Um, I can just see that being, uh, a, 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 there's a word I'm looking for, Claudette. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh <laughs> Uh, I, I, I don't know what word you're, you're looking for, but they would certainly have to shut down most of St. John's in order to accommodate the people to come in, for that's sure. That's the Avalon Peninsula, I'd say, more likely. Yes. And maybe that's what would have to have to be out of the out of the city somewhere. Some massive field that someone wants to rent somewhere out for. Somewhere off a, Whitless Bay Line in the <laughs> some place oh, yeah. in the Barrens. Actually, I was thinking, when you said that, I was thinking almost Roach's Line. That's oh, yeah. Order. It's a big old couple of farms out there. The Smallwood Farm is still out there. It might be a great spot. Anyway. I digress. Um, that was Pete Quinton. And again, if you want to hear the full interview, um, including uh, another ha- another full section of that interview about Pete himself and how he came to be where he is now with the uh, with the concerts and other things he has on the go with the George Street Festival and other items, that's next Saturday, not this Saturday, but next Saturday on our Profiles uh, feature here on BOCM. Uh, we're going to take a break for the news with uh, Sarah Strickland and be right back here on News Talk. I'm Brian Callahan in for Linda Swain. We'll be right back. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Brian Callahan in this afternoon, this lovely Friday afternoon for uh, Linda Swain. And as Sarah did mention in the news there once again, new poll by Abacus Data showing some, well, um, I would say probably not the most surprising uh, numbers uh, given the time of the cycle in between elections and that sort of thing. There's nothing urgent for the next couple of weeks, but I pontificated on this before the uh, before the news and uh, I'm going to hold my fire and let Tim Powers bring bring Tim in and Break down the numbers a little more. Tim, how are you this afternoon? Well, I wish I heard the pontification. I'm sure it was pure <laughs> genius, was it? Well, you know, it's not led by any bias in my family anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we all navigate that, Brian. We all navigate yes. that. Anyway, I am good, thank you. Good to talk to you uh, about this today. Yeah, I, I suppose, as you say, there's no big surprises, but there will be the horse race number, the first number, so the the number Sarah read there that shows the Conservatives with 38, the Liberals 26, and the NDP 19. Um, that will make a lot of Liberals nervous, because uh, that's a big gap, as Sarah said there. We haven't seen a gap like that for, uh, for a very long time, and you know, size-wise, it's not an insignificant poll. We polled, or surveyed, I guess is the way we say these things now, now, 2,189 Canadians, 
uh, from August 28th to the uh, to the 23rd. Uh, and again, we oversampled Atlantic Canada. So it's a fairly comprehensive poll um, that uh, will continue the tongues of wagging in the Liberal Party. To say the least. Now, there's a couple of things, you know, beyond the, the regular numbers and the fluctuations, as you said, it's, it's notable that the gap is as wide as it's been in some time. Um, what jumped out, though, too, uh, is the questions you asked around the ad and the ads that uh, Pierre Polyev has running. And a couple of things about that. First of all, you know, reflection of, of, of the impact of something like that. I mean, you know, ads work. We know that, but to what extent sometimes? And looking at the numbers, um, let's see, there's over one number you have here. Over 28% of English-speaking Canadians said they definitely recall seeing the ad with another 12% saying they think so. And that's possible 40% penetration in just over two weeks. But even more surprisingly is, is, the, is the, well, let's just talk about the ad first. I mean, you know, first of all, you bring in the personal touch. So it's his wife yeah. talking about him. That's the first thing that struck me about those, the, the new blank of ads. It is as personal and human as it gets. And there are a few people out there that, you know, the, the greatest critics of Sky, like Pierre Polyev, is that he's, mm-hmm. he's just not very human. He hasn't been or that mm-hmm. it hasn't been relatable. But this is the effort, is it not? Well, and very specifically targeting female voters, because Pierre Polyev has had, in our polls and other polls, struggles with female voters. Well, who better to validate potentially a candidate among female voters than his wife, because uh, she can speak from the personal perspective. Right. And, uh, and she's not going to lie. Uh, well, one would assume she's not going to lie. <laughs> but the skepticism uh, people have with political ads, you know, let's yeah, just face it. So yeah. you bring in a wife of the guy. Very unusual, very unique, very outside the box, but sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, no. Uh, and, and also you bring his kids in there. So, again, the human dimension, because Polly F., for those who know him or think they know him, has been um, seen in the past as an aggressive young Turk, if you will. Uh, you know, we're a rat packer, and Ari, you and I are familiar with, of yes. course, we're only children then, but somebody of, somebody of that particular age. And, yes, you're right. There's been – you talked about people seeing the ads. What we've seen is that it you know, there, there appears to be some improvement in – in his image. So uh, in our poll, 34% have a positive impression of the conservative leader. That's up 4% in two weeks. And these ads have been running for two or three weeks. And uh, his negatives are down by 3%. Yeah. So they're, they're a little bit outside the margin of error. And he's also, Brian, which is fascinating to me, given the potency of, of the, the Liberals' ability to win government and their good long-term ability of neutralizing opponents, it, it's, it's just so strange strange to me that the Liberals haven't tried to offer contra advertising yet because Polyev has a bit of a runway here to tell his story before they define him. Maybe that's an error. Maybe they're saving their, keeping their powder dry. But um, there is some evidence, at least in our poll, that these ads are helping a little bit. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and then you compound that with the fact that uh, over in your numbers, 56% of Canadians think Trudeau should step yep. down and let someone else become Liberal leader. Uh, well, you know, and Prime Minister, while well, 20 7% feel he should run again and 17 run short. But 56% of people think he should step down. How significant? Is that a big, does that tell a lot? Well, I, I mean, it's like those change numbers, right? And you've covered politics for a long time. When when you have high change numbers, and I think in ours in the past, we've had 81% of Canadians saying they want to change. They seem to be putting the blame squarely on Trudeau when all Canadians, 56% of them, recording that he should step down. Now, important to note, in our data, 
It's only 52% of liberal voters who identified as 2021 liberal voters who say he should step down. He needs, obviously, to keep that constituency on side uh, if he wants to win, though uh, 52% of liberal voters isn't an overwhelming endorsement either uh, from liberals for the prime minister. But no signs at this point, Brian, that uh, he's paying attention to our data or or, or other data. And, And if he is, he still seems to be pretty resolute about his intention to stay. But a lot can happen between now and whenever the next election comes. There was also an interesting number there, Tim, about uh, you know the impressions that liberal or NDP voters of the past have positively of Pierre Polyev. Yeah, there is some movement uh, in that category. I'm just getting that, that slide in front of me. But yeah, people who normally who uh, would not like him uh, are... Uh, are becoming a little bit more predisposed to him. Why is that a good thing? Uh, yeah, so here we go. One in three NDP and liberal voters yeah. in 21. And this is about the video, video, of course, yeah. Yeah, it makes them, uh, makes them feel a bit better. <laughs> Polyev needs that, right? Oh, yeah. uh, if he wants to win, he's got to get keep around the number that he has. He's got to move some voters over. So, I mean, that I suspect this number, number will vary as, uh, as more information is presented by Pierre Polyev's opponents. But right now, if you're Pierre Polyev, with Parliament returning uh, in a little over two weeks on September 18th, you're probably feeling pretty good about yourself because the challenge and the trouble is in the other court, though it would be foolish um, from a political perspective for Polyev to assume all he has to do is walk and chew gum uh, between now and the next election if he wants to win. I mean, can I just add point to one other thing, Brian, which really fascinates me? Is it Atlantic Canada? Is, yeah, the Atlantic Canada number. <laughs> That's what right? I'm looking like, at right now, neck and neck. Yeah, and, and again, the Liberals, even in their worst times, I always say this, but it's true in 2011 when they were the led by Mike Lignaniev and they fell to third, they mm-hmm. were dominating in Atlantic Canada. Um, that's not the case. We're consistently now finding them either behind uh, or are just holding their own in terms of staying tied. And that doesn't bode well for them because of the way support is spread out. More rural Atlantic Canadians are probably likely to support Conservatives, which means more seats. So, um, And, and I, we know you've covered it here on VOCM. We've covered it on VOCM. The fuel charge, things like that are Sorry. killing the Liberals in Atlantic Canada, With the and you see it in these numbers. Yeah, the PR side of that thing, the explanations and how they've rolled that out and the money in the pocket, that sort of thing, really hasn't worked for them. It just strikes me too, you know, uh, almost, it's been almost long enough now for some people to, I don't know about forgive and forget the Harper comment, but uh, that's always cropped up whenever a Tory has tried to make inroads, uh, a, a Tory leader or a PC leader has tried culture to make... Culture of defeat, yeah. The yeah, the culture of, of defeat, defeat line that, uh, you know, it, you can't escape it. I had to go back and look at it because, you know, over time, quotes can be... Um, modified in our memories but uh, I went back and looked at it and sure enough it was as blatant as it was and took him a while to shake that, but I thought when Clifford Small somehow broke through in, in rural Newfoundland that uh, maybe that's starting to wear off and maybe the stale factor on top of that for Trudeau is sort of the combination here. Yeah, look, I think there's probably enough time passed since Harper, but I mean, the Liberals, particularly in Atlantic Canada, are going to link Polyev to Harper and show videos of the two of them together. That still does that still does work in in some places. But you know, Clifford Small would tell you he he won on hard work and probably didn't hear much about Stephen Harper out there. I mean, the Conservative not really reported much on, but the Conservative Atlantic Caucus, which isn't very big, but nonetheless, they were in St. John's this week. Um, they had a 
pretty good turnout, I understand, and from what I've seen on some of the social media, and I'm sure you're hearing it as I'm hearing it, there are people now who are not afraid to have their name mentioned as potential candidates for the federal conservatives. That wouldn't have been the case seven or eight years ago. It just fascinates me, you know, the whole redo of his of his image and just one ad, what one ad can do, you know. I mean, these are just ads. These are professionally produced, edited, uh, thought through to grab the voter, and yet uh, it can completely... Um, you know, it can modify the way you're going to vote, even though the platform and everything else might not be something you're digging deep into. But just to see that, you know, uh, your questions and the poll regarding the ad just still fascinates me, the, the effects of that. Well, and it also speaks to the you know, the frustration and anger that's out there, too, that, yeah, yeah. as you say, something as simple as a, an ad. And don't forget, come on, Brian, it, it's got to be those <laughs> pipes he's showing in his T-shirt. I mean, I mean, some of this stuff is, is comical, but it works. You know, it's you go back to the days of, of Kennedy and everything else, how you look, how you present yep. yourself. It, it can it, it certain degrees change the way people uh, look at the the electorate but I, I do say this you know these are polls potentially a year two yes. years away from an election all is not lost for one party and, uh, and another party shouldn't count their uh, their chickens before they're hatched but uh, right now certainly making things very tough for the federal liberals who also have to navigate housing crisis uh, health care affordability um, and uh, the public is not giving them much benefit of the doubt uh, according to our last sampling just one other curious thing you know and uh, this was public and everything the fact that Trudeau and his wife uh, um, Sophie Gregoire are separating. Um, of course, you know, it seems all amicable and mutual. And they've even said, you know, they're going on family vacation together, or they did. Um, where does this play in? Can that become an issue in an election and whether or not he runs again? I mean, some people might say, oh, but look at all the free time he has. <laughs> a single father doesn't have a lot of free time. Yeah, a single father doesn't have a but lot of time. Uh, I can't, how I does this know. affect I mean, his I mean, image? It was interesting, right? I, I think it was 20 years ago. Maybe it has an impact, but there's so many more of us who can relate to what the Trudeau family's sure. going through. Uh, Does fact, it make maybe, him human? <laughs> yeah, it, it may help him a little bit. I mean, I think he tried uh, in PEI at the cabinet retreat this week, thanked people for the respect that they've shown. I mean, everybody has to watch themselves here. Yeah. Trudeau can't look to exploit this either for his benefit. The opposition uh, can't look to take advantage of it. But Great point. Canadians, you know, Canadians, I think, will judge it based on what they, they see and, and they hear. And maybe it makes him a more preferable character for some and, and less preferable for others. But, you know, you, there's lots of examples of single individuals leading this country, uh, uh, whether they be Christy Clark in, in B.C. or uh, others who have uh, who not been wed or in different relationships. Jason Kenney in, in Alberta was a single guy who led. So I don't think those factors matter anymore. Yeah, thinking about a prime minister and, of course, his, his, uh, his father. Is father and, right? Yeah, his father and everything else. Um, and very last thing before I let you go, I have to take issue. Yep. The Patrick Waugh of the Big Turks. I just want to say, for the record, I want to dismiss and publicly distance myself from any relationship that I am Patrick Waugh of the Big Turks. I was the Ken Dryden of the Big Turks. Thank you very oh, much. I, well, yeah, my point was you're just world class, buddy. You're just world class. <laughs> I think, you know what I think of? I think of that famous near save that Raw made when he lifted up his glove to show what a great save it was and he actually dropped the puck and they scored. That summed it up for me. I, I, I had to, I just couldn't watch. It was cringy. What? 
Well, let's also talk about the fact you probably have a little bit of Ken Dryden height envy. He's like two of you. He's a tall guy. I mean, you're you're small but mighty. So you know, we, uh, either's good. Either's good. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Tim. You have small a good day, but buddy. mighty. Nice I'll keep that one. <laughs> Enjoy. Thanks again, buddy. Bye. Tim Powers, Abacus Data. We're going to take a short break here on News Talk. Brian Callahan in for Linda Swain. Uh, right back. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. So last week, of course, we know the uh, former chief of the RNC spoke at a oversight uh, conference, a national oversight conference, made some controversial comments there. He wanted to get some things out in the open about his efforts and claims that he had been pushed out by um, some certain government or bureaucrats. Uh, government officials or bureaucrats. He stood by that in an exclusive interview with me that we conducted yesterday, and I wanted to get right to it. Uh, here is my interview with uh, Joe Boland uh, earlier, as taped yesterday, but ran this morning on the morning show. No, absolutely not. I mean, I had, uh, I had two years now that I've been away from uh, policing, and uh, to be able to reflect back, I was asked if I'd be interested in coming to speak on this. Uh, police oversight has been, uh, you know, something that I've thought about for a long time. Even when I was president of the RNCA, it's something that I broached with the government of the day. So, uh, yeah, no, I have no regrets for what I said. So, um, let's revisit it for a moment. Um, what was your chief concern? No pun intended. So, really, you know, when you look at what I was looking at, I was at a police conference, uh, oversight conference, national, uh, and I look at right across this country, and you see what's happening in other jurisdictions. While the models may not be perfect, you can see that they're making an effort here to try to get some type of uh, governance that separates police from from government. And uh, so, you know, that was kind of where I was coming from. Uh, I had an experience, you know, at the end of my career where I felt that the government literally pushed me out the door. So it was just added, I guess, uh, interest for me. Can you elaborate a little bit on being pushed out the door? In what way? Yeah, well, I said this uh, at the conference, and uh, you know, you know, the premier took exception to it. But you know, this is the reality: is you know, I have a, a statutory obligation here under the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary Act to make sure that the RNC is ran in an effective, efficient manner, where the people, you know, that protects the people of, of this province. And uh, you know, when you can't fill vacancies, when you're recruiting, it gets shut down. Uh, you know, uh, it becomes problematic and when people don't respond to, to emails. And it was a concerted effort, like, by, you know, several politicians and by, you know, the union and by certain senior bureaucrats. Uh, you say pushed out. I mean, obviously, you heard the premier's comments. He categorically said, he said, that's not true. Then he, he went further and said, you know, took great offense uh, to your comments that any politicians would have been involved in you or anyone else or any interference with the RNC. Yeah, so I'd like to clarify that part of it. So first, you know, it's unfortunate that the premier didn't get that right because, you know, they had people at the conference, you know, he has communication staff around him. Uh, at no point did I ever say that, uh, you know, politicians were trying to direct or pressure me when it comes to investigations. As a matter of fact, it wasn't too long ago when a former cabinet minister and MHA and his government, you know, accused the justice minister of the day through a text message to an RNC officer saying that, uh, you know, that that minister tried to interfere with that investigation to have the officer charged. You know, I came out at that time and, uh, you know, categorically said that that did not happen and the, the DPP came out as well. 
that there was no interference by the Justice Minister. That has never been my experience dealing with politicians. Just to say DPP acronyms, Department of Public... Director of uh, Dire- Public Prosecution. Right. At the time would have been Lloyd Strickland, I think. That's correct. That's interesting. So where do you think the lines got crossed there? I'm not sure. It was, you know, it was unfortunate for me because it, it made it seem like that I was not telling the truth here. And, uh, you know, when you make comments that, you know, if this is what he said, that they, you know, uh, tried to direct the police, which is absolutely not what I said. And uh, But what I did say and what I stand behind is comments in relation to text messages, in relation to not filling vacancies. And I'm not talking about, you know, a couple of vacancies here. I'm talking about significant vacancies in the RNC. Uh, that weren't getting, you know, that they told me that it just weren't going to fill. What's your understanding of why the vacancies weren't being filled? Well, I think that was the effort to push me out. You know, there was a lot to this decision. There's a lot to what happened here. Uh, you know, when you're talking about criminal complaints that were made against me, harassment complaints that were made against me, public complaints that were made, you know, so there was a lot to this, and it all started right around, you know, the end of my career. I know it's, you know, we could get in some um, uh, sensitive legal ground here, and I know you don't want to necessarily name people. That makes perfect sense. But, you know, where is this direction generally coming from? Criminal complaints and things that were being driven, and you still use the terminology of pushed out. Yeah, I don't know that I, I, you know, I'm still looking at... You know, before I get myself exactly into, you know, who did it and what did it, you know, I, I got a pretty clear picture of what happened here. Uh, today is probably not the best day to be speaking about that. But, you know, you look at when I went out the door, I had one harassment complaint hanging over my head. I have one that was, wasn't accepted. I had a public complaint that was accepted. I had another public complaint that wasn't. I had two criminal complaints that, uh, that the CERT had. And, uh, you know, they were dismissed after I left. And then I had two more a year after I was in. And so this was a, you know, it was a concentrated effort that, inclu- that it involved, you know, it involved the union, it involved members, it involved uh, politicians. So it was significant. In my view, the more that we opened the doors to the public here, the more that we let them see what's going on here, then the better outcomes we'll get. You know, if you look at where the RNC grew from, say, 2002, 2003 to currently, we have our highest numbers. You know, we have, you know, we have significant training now compared to then. Uh, you know, the salaries are competitive with anywhere in the country. Uh, you know, there was a lot of good that came. But the thing that we couldn't get and we're still struggling with is oversight. Uh, with regard to the appointments, the Premier had mentioned uh, he talked about the caretaker mode of government at the time because it was right in the middle of the election. Uh, does that hold water with you? Yeah, so vacancies, like, so a vacancy can be filled two ways. One is, you know, you put somebody into an acting, and then the other one is you go through a competition. So in caretaker mode, you know, I think the government's not, you know, it's probably not proper that they actually uh, put a permanent person in, albeit I think they could. Um, but normally that's not the case. They don't do it. But but to put somebody in an acting role or to run competitions, like we had significant vacancies in the RNC by this point. I'm talking about like two deputy chief vacancies. We had two superintendents out of three. These are the, you know, outside the chief, they're the highest ranking, you know, positions within the RNC. But then it went down to, you know, we had, I think it was three uh, inspector vacancies, four staff sergeants, 10 sergeant vacancies. And uh, I just could, like, you've you got to sit in my chair and realize the impact that that's having on your organization and on your community and the stress level and the urgency that uh, you're trying to apply to this and to receive silence was unacceptable. Uh, an RNC chief comes out and, and, and makes these public comments, uh, you know, 
couldn't have been an easy thing for you to do. Um, it's kind of unprecedented. It's why everybody latched on and, of course, raised a few eyebrows. Uh, no regrets about it whatsoever um, And uh, at this point? No, I tell you, look, uh, you know, my career has been around trying to improve the working conditions for RNC officers, the wellness. It's around uh, trying to embrace our community, you know, through many, you know, initiatives that I was the benefit of that happened before, you know, I got into the chief's chair uh, with regards to working with community stakeholders here. And certainly when I got in there, I took that and I think I took it to a whole different level. And then to watch some of that destroyed today, uh, you know, it hurts, quite frankly. It destroyed? Just in what way? Well, I look at, you know, the equine therapy programs and the whole thing with the support dog services and just a relationship with uh, some of the key stakeholders that we had that seems to be lost here now. And, uh, yeah, I don't think it's the proper direction. And, and uh, you know, I'm a citizen now in the community. I just happen to have, you know, a vast experience here when it comes to being a police association president and a former chief of police. is probably unprecedented in some ways. And uh, so I do have an opinion and I do have a right to voice it. Um, unprecedented? Absolutely. That is the former chief of the RNC, Joe Boland, there in conversation with uh, yours truly uh, yesterday. And uh, standing pat sticks to his guns that he was uh, pushed out uh, as RNC chief in 2021. That's it for today's show for the week here on News Talk. I'm pretty sure Linda will be back next week. I'm Brian Callahan. Have a great weekend. Drive safely. Arrive alive. VOCM cares.